Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Thank you, Scott. Hello and welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. Lots going on today. We're, we're going to talk about the dysfunction in Juneau. We're going to talk about the craziness going on at the South Central Foundation and all the, all the jobs that they're trying to replace. But we're going to talk about some other things involving um, Alaska politics. But first of all, thank you for joining us on this episode of the show. We're the place in Alaska for conservative news and we're standing up for your constitutional rights as Americans and your freedom to live, work, and play here on the last frontier. A special thanks to everybody who supports the Must Read Alaska news organization, and that's if you're on the website, the newsletter, or our links on Facebook, or here on the podcast. We love you. John uh, Quick is in Nikiski down on the Kenai, living the dream. What's going on with the folks in, in Kenai, John? Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. John Quick here in the lovely Kenai Peninsula Borough and uh, the Scuttlebutt down here is we have some newly elected conservative members on the Kenai City Council. And one of the first things they did was say, I want to take a look at the list of books that the library is about to purchase. And man, did that ever ruffle some feathers. And uh, it's, caused, it's caused quite the uproar down here on the Kenai, because historically, year over year over year over year, the library just goes out and buys whatever books they want. Now, there's goods and bads of that. Um, I'm all for adults being able to read whatever adult book they want, but the, the downside is the kids section looks more and more like the adult section every year, which I think is an inappropriate thing to have, have, have happen. So we'll see where the cookie crumbles. It's definitely something that the administration of the city Kenai is not looking forward to going through every book line by line with the city council. No, that sounds interesting. That sounds like a story I need to write. Okay, I'm going to get on that one. Well, um, we also have a special guest today. Tuckerman Babcock is with us. He's the former chair of the Alaska Republican Party, and he was formerly with the Dunleavy administration, and he's calling in from Soldatna. And so uh, like the folks in Kenai and Nikiski, uh, he's living the dream. Tuckerman, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for being on here. We um, really appreciate it. And for those who don't know, Tuckerman is a good friend of mine, and he uh, was one of the first people who suggested that Must Read Alaska needs to go uh, separate from the Republican Party, just needs to be independent, and he encouraged me. And so I, I always um, really appreciate that about our relationship. Plus, I also know that he follows politics really closely. And, and so Tuckerman, I, I was especially curious today to talk about why things are just so stuck in Juneau. Um, I was looking on the, the um, a calendar for the legislature and they're in the fourth special session, as you know, and they are they started on October 4th. And I think they've just had these technical sessions, which is the minimum requirement. And they hardly held any committee hearings and there's been none on the schedule for this week, really. So what is the holdup down there? What's your view on it? Well, there are a couple of key reasons. And, and the first is to observe there's absolutely no reason for 
a third or fourth special session. All of these issues should have and could have been resolved by the legislature. Uh, the governor made clear what his objectives were, but he's not a dictator and he can't tell the le legislature what to do. He can just provide opportunities for them. And if they refuse to act, then they don't. And what's happened in Alaska is that the need for money, the desire for money has led leaders in the Alaska legislature to look greedily upon the earnings of the permanent fund. And the easiest source of money for them is just to take money out of the hands of children and Alaskans everywhere through the form of seizing their PFDs. And that subtle stealth tax is just too attractive. And the legislative leaders are holding out, looking for that as a source of money. And while there is almost a majority in both houses to pay the dividend to the people it belongs to, Alaskans, there aren't quite enough. And the leaders in the Senate and the leaders in the House have not made it happen. And it falls squarely on their shoulders. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the House. I mean, we've got Louise Stutes. She's she's the uh, the the head of the House uh, majority, and she's from Kodiak, and she is the long uh, leftover from the Muscat Coalition. There's just hardly anybody left but her, and the rest of them have been unelected. But because she's from the island of Kodiak and the um, also kind of an island of Cordova, to be honest, um, she's uh, she represents people in that district and they seem to think she represents them well because they don't have anybody to replace her. Nobody has been successful. So she she runs a, she, although she's a Republican, she runs a coalition of mostly Democrats and then a couple of Republicans that joined in. And uh, in the meantime, you have uh, the House minority and they have a non-binding caucus. I think the House majority is binding. I think the House minority is non-binding. So they are a little bit of a wild and woolly group. They can do whatever they want to do. And sometimes some of them vote with the Democrat majority. I've seen that this last year. Um, we've seen Bart LeBond peel off a couple of times. Sarah Rasmussen's peeled off. And so you know, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I think one, it's kind of a misnomer to call things a binding caucus. Really, it's a caucus where you're allowed to think for yourself and vote your conscience, or it's a caucus where you're told what to do by your leaders. And the way Louise Stutes and the Democrats organize their majority is everyone has to vote the way they're told. Correct. And that, that ends up with some very bizarre votes like the new representative from Anchorage, Liz Snyder, a Democrat who won by 11 votes campaigning fully for a dividend but the first opportunity she got in the legislature, she just went lockstep with her uh, legislative bosses and did as she was told and reversed herself on her election campaign promises. Now, the, uh, among the House minority, I don't hold any, any criticism for uh, Steve Thompson or Bart Laban. They campaigned on sticking with the Republicans this go around, and they did on the caucus, but they also campaigned as skeptics of the full dividend. And so they're voting their conscience. And that's all Alaskans should expect from any legislators. They vote their conscience. They tell the truth when they're running for office. And when they get down there, they expect them to think for themselves and vote for themselves. So the way Louise Stutes holds on to power, she has to get, she had to get one Republican to join her 
in order to break the tie in the House. And unfortunately, Kelly Merrick from Eagle River abandoned her campaign promises and abandoned her her team and the Republicans who elected her and the joint put the Democrats in power. And to do that, she had to also suspend her own opinion, suspend her own ability to vote her conscience and vote lockstep with Stutes and the Democrats. Isn't it true that Louise Stutes back in the day of Muscat Coalition, or Muscat Caucus, I guess they call it, they signed a letter saying, you know, we are not going to not give people their full dividend. I mean, I recall that she was a, a complete full dividend person back when she was breaking away from the Republican majority. Well, uh, unfortunately, one of the well-deserved but sad reputations of politicians is that they will say one thing to get elected or say one thing to to posture and then when it comes down to it it meant nothing and that's a terrible thing for our republic it's a terrible way to try to govern uh, voters get discouraged they get cynical and, and who can blame them and louise stutes and her fellow uh, musk uh, what they called the muskox republicans uh, all of whom are gone now defeated except for louise uh, they postured as they were great defenders of the dividend until they got power, and then they became great takers of the dividend. That's exactly what I, the point I was trying to make. And well, let's turn our focus over to the Senate and um, take a look at what's going on over there because they're not doing any better, and that's where supposedly the grown-ups are supposed to live. Well, the Senate the Senate has passed at least the fifty fifty dividend, and unfortunately, the Senate Conference Committee on the budget. Uh, they blinked, buckled, and went with a lower number when the, the House just dug their heels in and said, we're not moving. And the Senate had an opportunity to force the issue to go into a second con conference committee, and this might be too much inside baseball. So when, when the House and Senate can't agree on the budget number, and, and they could not agree on whether to follow the law on the dividend or at least a 50-50 dividend, then they go to a conference committee where representatives from each body negotiate for a settlement. The House won that negotiation completely because the two senators from the Republican majority who were assigned to the conference committee were both Republicans who have long fought the dividend and fought providing a full dividend. So it was easy for them to cave. And then the vote came back to the Senate where you have to agree or concur with what the conference committee negotiated. And unfortunately, the Senate voted 10 to 10, 10 to 10, to accept the surrender on the dividend. And that led to the need for these subsequent special sessions and the debacle they find themselves in right now where they can't even get enough people to meet, let alone provide a dividend to the people. I would think that the leadership, though, would be able to, you know, Somebody like Peter Machigi would be able to say, look, at, you know, you need to come to Juno. We need to meet. We need to get our, the people's work done. And we've left it undone. We've got this $1,100 dividend out there. That is not what we ran on. We ran on a full dividend. Let's get our work done. But I don't know. I just don't see anybody. Maybe it's all behind the scenes, but nobody's showing up in Juno. And I don't know whose responsibility it is. Well, uh, the Senate president has tried hard to pull people together but he has not succeeded in doing so at this point. And he, uh, he, had a, he has voted in favor of, of the 50-50 plan on the dividend. 
And he's tried to push that through, but he's not held his finance chairman, Bert Stedman and Click Bishop. He hasn't held them accountable for their failure to support the position of the Senate. And uh, that has to fall on his shoulders. And he has a plan uh, for January and February. And all we can do is pray that that plan is successful because so far it's been a year of disappointment. Been a year of disappointment. I got, a, I got a question for you, Tuckerman. So let's say um, somebody's listening to the podcast and they're wondering, well, what do I even do? Like, this seems just such like a circus and people are saying one thing and then vote another way. And there's committees and conferences and I, they don't fully understand what's going on. What can the average Joe or Jane do about the craziness that's happening in Alaska politics right now? I think that, that's another really good question. And when I was chairman of the Republican Party, what I every candidate that I talked to when I was trying to recruit people or supporting them would say, you get to choose what you want to campaign on. You get to choose what your priorities are. And whatever they are, be honest about them. Really work for them. Do not betray the confidence of the voters. And what has to happen now, and what I would advise anyone listening to this podcast is look through the list of legislators in the Senate and the House. Find one whose voting record and whose integrity you believe in. And then ask that legislator, which ones are the ones we can trust and which ones are the ones we cannot trust on the issue that's important to you? Because it's so easy when people campaign to throw out, well, according to the second committee of the third committee of the second week of the first meeting, we couldn't move section A without section B. And pretty soon the average voter is wondering who's telling me the truth. So it's up to you to find the legislator whose voting record and whose reputation leads you to believe what they have to say, look at the voting record that they provide and you'll find out which legislators you can trust and which ones you can't. And as I say, I have a whole different level of feeling toward people who campaign openly as uh, LaVon and Thompson did, that they were gonna stick with the Republicans, but they were not in favor of a full dividend. Well, that's fair enough. That's what they campaigned on. And then you have people like, like Liz Snyder who campaign on the dividend and then turn around and vote against it. Right, right. Well, I mean, let's turn our top, our um, our focus to a couple other topics that before we um, we run out of time here. I just I ran a story yesterday on South Central Foundation. I, I know it was, I believe it was Monday morning we ran the story on South Central Foundation about how they they fired all these unvaccinated people, and these are nurses and nurses aides and tobacco specialists and um, chiropractors, all these people that got fired because they won't take the the vaccine. And it's a significant number of people. And now they're at, they've got an internal memo to their staff saying, anybody who brings us a recruit, and if we, if we get them through the job application process successfully, and they take a job with us and we hire them, you will get a bonus, a $1,000 bonus or a $5,000 bonus for referring them to us. So they are now going inside their organization to see if they can get help from their employees replacing these people who you know, worked throughout the pandemic when, when nobody could get a vaccine and people were working without this vaccine heroically. And then once that vaccine was available, now they're being fired for not taking it. 
And I just thought it was, you know, check out that story if you're not driving. It's um, it's the 16th in the series that I've been running on people who are losing their jobs over the vaccine mandates. And in this case, it's pretty odd to see that uh, that they're actually getting people from inside, or they think they're going to get people from inside the organization to find recruits to, to work for South Central. I kind of don't think they will, but uh, I wanted to just make a note that, you know, down in in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is doing things like offering $5,000 bonuses for police officers to come down there and join the police forces in uh, the Sunshine State. And then um, even in Alaska, I think there's a $20,000 bonus for coming and working as a state trooper. And you, you've got a $10,000 hiring bonus and a $10,000 moving bonus. They've got, they've got some really big bonuses for coming and signing on as a trooper. Department of Corrections, John, what's the bonus for um, hiring there? $5,000, I think? Uh, $10,000 now for the Department of Corrections for your hiring bonus. That's uh, incredible, up to $10,000. And so these are, um, these are for new employees but we've switched it now over at South Central. Where we're not just giving the bonuses to new employees, we're giving them to people who can find the new employees. A whole different thing. Tuckerman, what do you think about this? Well, I, I think that, that the, the legislature and the governor in Alaska ought to take a page out of President Biden's book. And if he thinks he has the authority to order companies or contractors with the federal government to require vaccines, we could just as well turn around and tell all the nonprofits in Alaska, you accept any money from the state, you cannot have a mandatory vaccine. And any, company, to that. any company that tries to do a mandatory vaccine won't be eligible for one more penny from the state, whether that's through Medicaid or any other state program. And that would certainly affect the South Central Foundation. And this well. is a... Well, it would what also else? it would also affect the the railroad. And I ran a story about that. And the railroad, the Alaska Railroad, has now got a vaccine passport, and everybody's got to get vaccine vaccinated up for COVID by December eighth, according to their you know they're following federal guidelines. Well, and there are so so many problems with this whole approach to vaccination. And if uh, anyone would take the time to read the European Journal of Epidemiology, there they studied almost 3,000 counties in the United States and 176 countries. And their conclusion was that vaccines do absolutely nothing to stop the spread of COVID. So to the extent the vaccines are effective, it's in keeping the individual who's vaccinated out of the hospital or in more cases out of the hospital. It doesn't do anything to stop the spread of COVID among your fellow co-workers. So why on earth, what on earth is the business justification for a mandatory vaccine? There isn't one. I think a lot of uh, heat's coming toward uh, Dunleavy, uh, Governor Dunleavy on this because the, he, he said a few weeks ago, I, he signed an order saying there will be no vaccine passports in this state uh, there will, and, and that you will, it will not be a condition of employment for the state of Alaska. And the railroad is owned by the state of Alaska. And yet it's run by its own board and it's, 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 it's a corporation that's owned by the state. So I wonder if other corporations like ADA or um, maybe AGDC or something, or I wonder if they too will have vaccine mandates and the governor apparently has nothing that he can do about this at all. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't conclude one way or the other yet about the governor. I think he's probably looking into it. His, 
my guess is the railroad acted without giving him any heads up or advance notice. And so now he and uh, the administration would be dealing with the issue and researching it and seeing exactly what could be done to keep all state entities in alignment with uh, his management. Well, and, and that's what I would hope. And I, I also have heard that a lot of these, well, I heard from a number of these employees from the railroad who said that there's some talk about people just walking off the job, that there may be a strike. It, it may not go their way. So this is one of those uh, dicey things when you start forcing workers to take medication. <laughs> you know, Pretty scary. Well, I served several years as a director of human resources with an electric company. And, and the, the way businesses approach and should approach these kinds of questions, what is the business interest? Is there a business interest in requiring drug testing? Is there a business interest in requiring a certain dress? Is there a business interest in requiring certain uh, vaccinations to avoid cross-contamination or whatever purpose it might be? In this case, the railroad's frank in their press release. They, they discussed why they were doing this. They're just responding to the order from President Biden that contract anyone associated with contracting with the federal government has to vaccinate their employees because no business reason at all. It's purely politics. Yeah, it's purely, uh, well, it is, there is a business reason. If the government cuts them off and they get no uh, contracts from the government at all, well, then that would put them out of business. So I guess there is a business reason. So it was back well, to- Well, I think that, I think two can play with that, that method. There's a state has a lot to say about what happens on the railroad as well. And that's yes, why that's why my my approach would be fine. Any entity that expects a dollar in state money, no no mandates for vaccines. John, you have any thoughts on this? Well I think uh, you know um, Tuckerman, you brought up a great question of why, you know, why would somebody do this? You know, why would South Central Foundation do this? Well I think they've lost their minds. I mean, that's literally what I think is happening, that they care more about politics, aligning politically with something than they actually do about running the day-to-day -day operations of their business. And now they're in a predicament where they're like, oh crap, we just fired a bunch of people and we have no idea how to recruit replacements. And they shown their cards by saying, we, we don't have any recruits. Let's try to get our employees to recruit them for us. And I just think that we are going to see a lot more of this happening if businesses or nonprofits or different agencies choose politics over sound business practices. And it's unfortunate we're going to see this unfold right in front of our very own eyes. Before we turn to our next topic, I just want to say I was checking the Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation website, which I do on pretty frequent occasion to see how many jobs they are advertising. Six weeks ago, they had 600 job openings. Now they have 628. That is a significant jump in job openings for healthcare professionals for Western Alaska. And that's, you know, it's a pretty big area and it's a lot of it's Nome and, and Bethel and, you know, that whole, that whole area. Um, in Norton Sound area, all the little villages, but that is a lot of people that they are looking for to fill jobs. And to go from 600 to 628, that tells you what's going on in these health care organizations. We don't really know what's going on with South Central, how many they're recruiting or, and how many left the jobs because of the, of the mandates. We've heard from, from many of them. I've heard from a dozen of them. But um, 
but probably some of that information will come out. We'll just we'll just bide our time. Hey, let's talk a little bit about um, this Senator L.B. Gray Jackson. I was uh, writing about this because I got the Democrat Party newsletter called Tall Tales from Juno is their newsletter published by Jeannie Devon, who's their communication director. And she is just pushing hard. All of them are pushing hard. Casey Stenow, who's the head of the, the Democratic Party, is pushing hard for everybody to get on board with L.B. Gray Jackson, who's the senator from Midtown, uh, Anchorage. Uh, she covers like College Park and Spinard, UMed District. And she's she has, a, um, it was, it's, it's, it's uh it's a Burdick Gardner's old district, I guess, is what it is, right? Right, Tuckerman? Yes, that's correct. And so they're just pushing they're pushing really hard. And Tuckerman, you were the chair of the Republican Party. And I don't think that they did this where they recruited somebody and then started pushing them very hard be, out in the public arena before anybody even before they even filed. This person hasn't filed. LV Jackson hasn't filed. And yet for about six months, they've been priming the pump that she will be the person who takes on Lisa Murkowski. And I just think it's very interesting because this is a very top-down kind of method for running your party. It's not, it's not atypical of the Democrats. They, they only pretend to care about what the public wants. They, they like to pick their candidates, groom a candidate and move that person into a pipeline and then cookie cutter them into the next slot that they think is appropriate. And, you know, sometimes as a chairman, I, I kind of wish that the Republican Party had something like that instead of just being at the mercy of anyone's interest and, and independent people deciding to run for office. But actually, I'd never trade for the Democrats' method. I, I like the Republicans, rough and tumble. Anybody can, can jump in and give it their shot and try to get nominated. But with, the, with Scott Kendall's weird, bizarre primary doing away with the primary and having a first election where four, four people, up to four people are chosen to go forward. And then a general election with some sort of ranked choice business, which uh, you knock anyway, it's complicated and it's only designed to try to reelect, you know, give Lisa Murkowski the slightest chance of reelection. And the Democrats in doing this, and Scott Kendall worked for Lisa Murkowski in 2016 as her part, her, re-election attorney. So that's how I trace all that back to uh, Scott Kendall. But Elvie Gray Jackson is a very loyal Democrat. She's gone through the Democrat pipeline as an aide to the Anchorage Assembly and then a couple of terms on the Anchorage Assembly and then uh, dutiful, dutifully put her name forward for the state Senate. I did see a spark in her when she was first elected and uh, she actually voted for the dividend but uh, the Democrat leaders in the Senate quickly brought her around and she reversed herself by the second time it came up for a vote. She's been a loyal uh, anti-dividend person ever since. But she is not a bad choice for the Democrats. And they, uh, a lot of people thought, well, there won't be a Democrat running because they're all now with the open primary and the open, uh, the, uh, I shouldn't use the word open, the uh, very confusing election process. But you know, the Democrats know that Lisa Murkowski is very weak and uh, they have a good shot of coming in second in the election. And then the, the race would be between Kelly Chewbacca and L.V. Gray Jackson. And that kind of excites the Democrats. Well, there's only three in the race so far. And the top four go to the, go to the general. 
So right now you've got Murkowski, Kelly Chewbacca, and well, I presume Elvie Gray Jackson. So you almost you need a fourth just to even get the you know all four would end up moving ahead to the to the general election ballot. I mean, I, I right. What I what instead I, of it's, go ahead. Well, just to, just a picture. The coming out of that August election, and you have the four candidates. We don't know who the fourth will be yet. And then you get to the general election, and nobody gets fifty percent, but Kelly Chewbacca and L.V. Gray Jackson are number one and two. And that's what the Democrats are looking for. They're looking for a candidate that can just come in a little bit above Murkowski, and then hope that they can get uh, Murkowski second votes going for their Democratic candidate. Otherwise, Democrats have no chance of winning a statewide race against a Republican incumbent. Okay, so what, you're, what, so what you're saying is, is that the Democrats will go in and they'll vote for L.B. Gray Jackson for their top choice and Murkowski for their second choice, and then they'll probably just walk away after that. They're not going to vote for maybe Kelly Chewbacca. And so, you know, go, let's say a Republican's going in. Republican might go in and vote Kelly Chewbacca for their first choice, and maybe they vote L.D. Gray Jackson for their second choice because they're so mad at, at Murkowski. Maybe they vote Murkowski for their second choice because they'll never vote for a Democrat. What do you think about that? I think what everyone's going to find is that Kelly Chewbacca runs a campaign designed to get 50% of the vote and have it not be an issue. But I think that the Democrats, uh, for the first time, in a, the first time since uh, Murkowski's first election, when she had to run against Tony Knowles, Ever since the Democrats have begged off having a real candidate. And this time you can just, you ask why they're doing this. You know, you're wondering what, how remarkable it is that they're pushing so hard through the party for L.V. Gray Jackson, a state senator, to be their candidate. And it's because they're really, really excited about having a candidate in 2022. The Democrats are all in for having a strong candidate. And that's, that's why they want to clear the field and they want to put their, can, their chosen candidate forward. She'll probably get considerable national money uh, for her campaign and they are going to run all out and and uh, our incumbent senator who has relied on democrat votes in the past is going to find herself between a rock and a hard place because the democrats will be running a full campaign with jackson and the republican party which has already endorsed uh, kelly chewbacca was solidly behind her and murkowski will find uh, not much room in the middle of yeah, the road murkowski will be on an island by herself one of my favorite quotes this comes from the official Facebook page of the Alaska Democrats, October 24th, 2020. They wrote, Lisa Murkowski only holds her seat because she convinced Democrats to write in her name as an act of faith. Since then, we've been begging for crumbs and more often than not, we get nothing. And that is on the official page of the Alaska Democrat Facebook page. Right. So and then, and during the, the past year, they've said, Lisa, we're done. We're, you know, we're, we're done. And they, they've said that openly now. So I think that's an answer to your question, Suzanne, is that they, they are so excited about the opportunity to have a real Democrat in 2022, that they are, they are risking nothing by just waiting to see who's going to file. They want to, they want to groom, control, and present their choice as a party. Well, you know, they picked a, an anti-police, an anti-law um, enforcement kind of a candidate. But in, in other respects, she's a, a good candidate for them. She does represent the very far left-leaning pinnings of that party. Well, thank you so much, Tuckerman, for joining us on the podcast today. Boy, this went by so fast, and I can't even believe it's gone. You'll do it again with us, won't you? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a great opportunity, and the service you provide to Alaskans is 
unparalleled, unmatched, and I can't uh, thank you enough and Scott enough and John enough. It's just a wonderful opportunity to have this kind of reporting in Alaska. Well, great. We're going to have you back on. And for the rest of the week, everybody, just please sign up for the Must Read Alaska newsletter. It goes out three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then you can sort of get caught up on everything you might have missed online because, boy, we, we put out a lot of content. And if you're not going to Must Read Alaska a couple times a day, you are, uh, you're likely missing some of our stories because they'll cycle down the page. Scott Levesque, I want to thank you for all you do as our producer of the show and for everybody who wants to, to check in with us the rest of the week. Scott will be our host on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I will join him later in the week as his co-host, and we'll do some wrap-up of the weekly news. And if you'd like to support the conservative side of the news in Alaska, please hit the donate button right there on the right-hand side at mustreadalaska.com. And your support allows this project to stay strong and independent and thoughtful. So if you're done with the liberal news media, and I know you are, thanks for being with us. Let's go, Brandon. Until next week, we're signing off from somewhere in Alaska. Bye.